All right, good morning, everybody. As y'all finding your way to your seats, we're going to be continuing our uh, discussion of teaching on as an overview of First Peter. Um, and, and as Peter mentioned last week, we're not going to be going through every uh, passage, every verse, every idea in First Peter. We're just going to be looking at the big picture, trying to understand what is this book about overall. If you came to say, what does First Peter teach? What are the main ideas and themes in First Peter? We're hoping you'll be able to walk away from this teaching with, with that big idea in mind. Um, and, and as we get into First Peter in this section this morning, which is really... Uh, the introduction to the book. So last week, Peter looked at the, the greeting, the first two verses where we identify who's writing the letter and who he's writing it to. And this morning, we're going to be looking at verses 3 through 12, where Peter starts to um, identify some of the themes and the big ideas that we're going to see recur throughout, throughout the book. Um, and before I get into that, I just want you to acknowledge how difficult this might be for me this morning as I am reading the book of First Peter, written by the Apostle Peter, and referring to things Pastor Peter said last week. So, if you're confused about which Peter you're talking about, so am I. Old man. Uh, <laughs> as we get into First Peter, uh, one of the things that I really appreciate about this book, uh, it relates to something Pastor Peter said last week, which is, uh, that, that he and I kind of come and approach teaching in the Bible just from a different emphasis, right? He said he's, he's looking at the big ideas, the theology, the big concepts that are presented in the Bible, things like God's sovereignty, his glory, the, the idea of sanctification and justification. You're going to hear him talk about and emphasize and draw those things out of the book. And when I talk, I'm, I'm looking more a little more at a ground level. I'm trying to ask what does this say to us here? What was this book saying to the original people who heard it? How, does, how do those ideas land? How do we apply them to our lives? Uh, and what I really enjoy about First Peter, though, is it's really more obviously than a lot of books holding those two things together. It's, it's showing you how the concepts of our faith apply to the context of our lives in a very close proximity. That's true of, of every book of the Bible. Both of those elements are going to be present. But if you're reading something like a letter from Paul, they're a little bit more separated. Right? You're going to get probably the first half, two-thirds of his book is going to be talking about the big ideas and the big concepts. And then at the end, he's going to come in and give you the application of how to live out of all of those ideas. But, but the book of Peter is doing those things a little bit more closely together. He's kind of going back and forth between concept and context. And even this morning, in these ten verses, we're going to see that he's going to go from one to the other. And what I think is really helpful about the way that he's doing that is it's teaching us how we are supposed to hold those together. You're supposed to be seeing the big ideas, and you're supposed to be applying them to a particular context. And those two things should be in conversation with one another. And not even, it's not even just that the concepts change the way we live. We live in light of these big theological ideas, but actually the context which they're spoken to changes how we understand those ideas. Think about this. If I say the same phrase, the same idea in two different movies, it changes how you understand that idea. All right, so if I say, they're coming, 
in a movie like The Incredibles. You'll, you'll be excited. The, the good guys, the heroes are coming to save you. But if I say they're coming in Jurassic Park, <laughs> it means something a little bit different, right? Same idea, but the context changes it. Or what about a phrase like, um, don't give up? If I say don't give up in Rocky, or if I say don't give up in Saving Private Ryan, similar idea, similar, but, but the weight of that phrase is changed. The hopefulness of it is changed. The cost of it is changed. When you see the phrase in light of the context. Or if I say, I love you at the end of Pride and Prejudice or in the middle of Casablanca. It's a different thing, right? At the end of Pride and Prejudice, you've seen this love story unfold and it's the, it's the climax, it's the culmination you've been hoping for the whole time. And in the middle of Casablanca, it's the reason you feel the pain of regret and loss at the end. Same concept, different context, and that changes the idea. And what we're going to see is in Peter, he's pulling those two things together and he helps us see how to have those in conversation. Sometimes he does it um, by taking a concept and sort of using it as a lens to understand the situation to which he's writing. And sometimes he takes a situation and he pulls it into the bigger story and truths of the gospel. But you're always going to see these two things very close together. And God intended both of those things. He intended the context into which he was speaking as well as the specific words that were spoken. And so to fully understand what God wants us to see in his word, we need to be thinking through both of those lenses and holding them together. So as we read through this chunk here, it's verses 3 through 12, um, try to be looking for both of those. There's, it's not a perfectly clear line between concept and context, as is normal, but, but I think you'll see the shift in emphasis if you're looking for that. Starting in verse 3. Said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Did you see the shift there? I, th I think the first three verses are heavy on the concepts. 
the story of the gospel, what we hope for, the life through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then he shifts and looks at the context to which he is speaking. Though you now, if necessary, for a little while, are suffering various trials. And that's how I think we can look at this passage today, to see this pattern of how Peter applies concepts to our life context. We're going to look first at just some of the truths that Peter is introducing here that we're going to see recur throughout the book. And then also want to look at how does he take those ideas and apply them to the lives of the people that he's writing to, that we can learn not only from his ideas, but how he connects them to people's lives. So the first, I've got three ideas for us to go through. Um, The first concept for us to look at is that Peter is rooting everything in the person of Jesus. Right? As he opens this letter in his introduction, how is he going to start? How do you start? I don't know how many of you write actual letters these days. Um, But if you do, how do you start that? What's the the first thing that you're going to say? What if you're writing to somebody who's in a particularly difficult situation of life? But you might have some idea of things you want to get to, some ideas of places you want to go, but how do you start? Right, you're, you're probably going to start with, with some connection that you have with that person. Right? Remembering the last time you saw them or, or that it's something that you always love to do with them, that you miss them, just, just the connection that you have with them. And that's what Peter starts with here. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's probably a common greeting that was going around at the time, which you can know if you read, I hadn't noticed this before, but if you read um, Ephesians 1.3 or Colossians 1.3, it's, it's exactly or almost exactly the same wording here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's so probably like a common greeting that they would have had. Like if you show up here on Easter morning, and you see Phil Widener, he's going to say, he is risen. And you know the response is, he is risen indeed. It's a common greeting. And that's how Peter starts this letter, to say, this is what connects us. That we love the God and Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, don't run past that too quickly. That is significant, just to stop and note, this is the root of everything we are doing. Jesus Christ is the reason we are all here today. And that's what connects us. That's the most fundamental thing about us. Peter's going to come back to this idea over and over again. I think Pastor Peter mentioned last week that he uses the phrase Jesus Christ nine times throughout this letter. And he's coming back to it again and again. And you can can almost predict it. When you're reading through a section, you can just be wondering, how long is it going to be until he connects this idea to Jesus He does it again and again and again. He doesn't go very far. And we can learn from that. This is what's most fundamental about us. Not our commitment to Reformed theology. Not our commitment to the continuing work of the Spirit. Not our commitment to an interpretation of the Bible as inerrant. More fundamental than anything else in our faith is Jesus Christ. That shapes everything about us, everything about what we are and what we believe and how we live. And that leads us to the next point, because what he notes next is that we are marked by resurrection. And resurrection is not just life. 
Resurrection is life that comes out of death. So we, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, does that phrase, born again, jump out at anybody? Anybody know where else we've heard that phrase? There's one other place. That's right, John 3, where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and he's explaining what you need is not just to be born once. You need to be born again, not just of water, but of the Spirit. And what you'll remember is Nicodemus was very confused by that phrase. What is he talking about that I need to be born again? Can I go back into my mother's womb? And what you see here is that the Apostle Peter has finally understood what Jesus was talking about. The Apostle Peter, who was also notoriously confused around all the things that Jesus would say. right? Because they had an expectation of what the Messiah was going to be like. He was going to come and he was going to make all things new. He was going to restore the kingdom. He was going to bring life to his people. And they expected that when the Messiah came, things were just going to go and get better and better and better until everything was perfected. And so when Jesus starts talking about he's going to die, the Son of Man is going to be killed, Peter says, no, that can't, that can't be what's going to happen. And he rebukes Jesus, and Jesus has to say, no, stop, you're not helping. He was confused because he did not understand the particular shape of how Jesus was going to accomplish his mission. How? Jesus was going to make all things new, how he was going to lead to life through death. It's not just this continual ascent to perfection. It's a life that comes through death. J.R. Tolkien had a phrase you may have heard called eucatastrophe, where he notes that this is a common pattern in fairy tale stories. Um, that, that kind of things go along, and usually in a story, and it's common in, in movies, superhero movies, you kind of get to the bottom part of the movie, right? Everything has gone wrong, nothing can possibly work, and you know at that moment it's not going to end sad. Something's going to happen. Some hero's going to come, some unforeseen circumstance is going to change it, then all of a sudden something's going to happen that's catastrophically good. And we're going to come from the worst part of the movie to the best part of the story. That's what happens in fairy stories. And I think that happens that we resonate with that because that's the shape of the world God has made. We resonate with the, the sudden, um, sudden rescue out of the darkest moment because that's how God has chosen to tell his story in Jesus Christ. I was remarking to, to my wife, Frankie, the other day just how many times the story of people in the Bible does this. Right, Joseph, who is going to go and, and save and become this leader in some way, first gets sold into slavery, goes into prison, and then all of a sudden, he's called up to Pharaoh and suddenly made second in command. Saves his whole family and keeps the promise of God alive, um, just in a sudden shift. Moses, who has the desire to save his people, has, is exiled for decades until God meets him in a bush and calls him back and works miraculously to save them. David is promised to be king, but before that, he's chased by Saul out of his land, actually ends up in exile in the land of his enemies, until suddenly Saul is destroyed and he is made king. This is a common pattern in the story of the Bible, and it's because I think that's the pattern Jesus took himself. 
He does not lead to life simply on a perfect ascent to perfection. It's life that comes out of death. And we are marked by that pattern. There's a little bit of a parallel here that's going to be drawn out more in the rest of the book. that, That we are born again. We get that new life by the resurrected life of Jesus. And the way we experience that life is marked by the way Jesus accomplished it. We don't experience life in Christ just as an ascent to the best. We also have some of that pattern of life that comes out of death. Jesus did not call us to step straight into heaven. He said, if you will follow me, take up your cross and follow me. This is something we need to keep in mind as we try to understand the context in which we live. That we are a people marked by resurrected life. The third point Peter draws out is that our hope is in later. Right? He says we are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verses 4 and 5, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is, just goes right along with the idea that we are experiencing life out of death, but we have to remember as we understand what this faith is, that its hope is primarily in later. And that's not always the way that Christianity is sold to us. Right? Sometimes, and there's truth in this too, sometimes people when they're explaining why you should be saved and, and what Jesus has done for you, they talk about that life now is better with Jesus than life without Jesus. And that's true. Life now is better with Jesus than without Jesus. Eternal life begins today. But if that's your whole understanding of the faith that you are adopting, you're going to be confused when you walk through this resurrected life, when this world is still full of, as the people he's speaking to, suffering and various trials. When your life feels like you are elect exiles, alienated in the world that you're living. And because that, what that's missing, if all you know about faith is that it's better with Jesus now than not, is when the Bible goes to talk about what we hope in, the main thing it emphasizes is later. We are waiting for later. That's where our hope is primarily kept. And this isn't, don't don't hear Peter here being a downer. He's not saying, you know, lower your expectations. Don't look for too much out of this life. That's, That's not the tone he's taking. This would have been encouraging to the people that were hearing it. And if you can imagine a little bit of this context, that that there are people in this situation who are cut off financially. When when they accepted Christianity, what would have happened is um, a lot of people would have said, well, you're not coming to the temple anymore. You're not worshiping to our God. That's really important for our harvest, or that's important for the prosperity or the safety of our city. And so they would start to blame things that happened on the Christians. Said, you haven't been coming to the temple with us, that, that drought last month, that might have been because of you. And so they would have been cut off from 
um, the society where they were living in, maybe from the trade they were living in. Some of them might have seen their livelihood, their family businesses destroyed because people wouldn't trade with them anymore. Some of them were actually exiles. Some people faced such persecution, particularly those in Jerusalem, that they actually had to leave their home. Everything that they had, their home, their possessions that they couldn't carry on their back is gone. And there's no insurance policy or welfare program for these people. They have lost everything. So when Peter says, you have an inheritance that is imperishable, that is unfading, that would have pricked up their ears. That would have spoken to their moment and something they were hoping in. You have an inheritance that no one in your city can touch. You have something that can never be taken from you. And that is true. There is such hope in this. Even we who maybe don't face similar um, persecution in our context know the fadingness of everything that you own. Things don't satisfy the way they first did. But you have an inheritance that will never be touched by the decay and the death in this world. And there's great hope in that. But to understand our hope, to make sense of our situation, we need to understand that primarily that hope is in later. It's still coming. It's being kept. It's sure. But we don't experience it all right now. And as we take these concepts and apply them to our context... We need to remember these truths to make sense of where we're living. So how does Peter teach us to do that as we transition to these next few verses? I, I got to pulled three ideas, and I, I could have done more, um, but I pulled three ideas out of this um, as he goes from looking at the truths that they all believe in to the particular situation of those he's writing to. How do we learn how to take those concepts and reinterpret our life? So the first thing that I think he does, we see him do, is he begins to retell their story. Verses 6 to 7. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, let me, let me pause there for a second, actually, before I go on with this. I'm curious how this hits people in this room. If you are in currently a moment of suffering, how does that phrase sound to you? In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. I think if you read that, and that's the only thing you hear him say, it could sound dismissive of the suffering that you're going through. I wonder how this was read by the people uh, in the first century. You've been kicked out of your home. <laughs> you, you're not getting, your family business has been destroyed. You know, for a little while, if, you, if necessary, you have to suffer, right? Is that, is that how that sounds to you? Is, that, is, it, is it just dismissive, like it's not taking this seriously? Is this sort of the, what we tell people not to do, just sort of slapping a Bible verse on someone's life? I, I think it could sound that way, but, but I want you to see that I don't think that's what Peter's doing. And as we go through this, I, see, I think you'll see the care with which he addresses them. He's not just bringing some trite phrases. He's bringing the deepest truths he knows in the most encouraging way he can. And we can learn from the way that he does this. And I think there comes a moment. What he's speaking to is not necessarily that first moment of suffering where someone's just experienced a loss and what they need right now probably has nothing to do with words. They just need your presence. They just need you to care for them. But what Peter's speaking to is that moment where if you walk with someone through suffering... 
you consistently, you're there with them, you're caring for them, you're walking with them, there's going to come a moment where they're going to have questions. And they're going to want some help making sense of what's happened. Their world's just been turned upside down, and they are confused. And they need someone to speak truth into their lives. And that's the moment that Peter is speaking to. If you're going to go learn how to apply truths to people's situations... That's when you're doing that. That's when this is going to be helpful. Not necessarily in that first moment of loss when what they need is just someone to weep with them. But as they go to try to put their life back together and to understand what's the confusion that they're experiencing, then this is helpful. Okay, back to this. So how is he doing it? How is he retelling their story? And first, that phrase, just a couple phrases to pull out of here of what he's kind of adjusting the lens on how they see themselves. He does say, for a little while. The suffering you have, it's for a little while. And, and there's truth there that, that relative to eternity, it's just short. But there's truth there also that says, this suffering you're experiencing will end. It does not last. It's only for a time. You're in this down part of the story right now. But the end of it, we do get to this ultimate hoped for perfection. And that does not end. This has an end date. And then he gives them two pictures to help them understand the, the, what's happening in this suffering. He says that their faith, and he compares it to gold. He says, your faith is more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire. And that's just a picture for them to hold and understand what this suffering is doing. Pastor Keith gave an illustration similar to this, talking out of 1 Peter 5 a few weeks ago of of cooking. That that to make a delicious meal, you you use heat and pressure. And that does something in the food you're cooking to make this meal. It's a similar idea you'd have for gold. They would have been aware that goldsmiths take gold and they melt it down and it gets rid of the impurities. And what comes out the other side is even more valuable, even more precious than what you had to start with. He's giving them a picture to take and say, your suffering is like that. It's producing something on the other side that's even more valuable than the most precious refined gold that you can find. And what you're going to find is in the day when Jesus returns, there's going, you're going to experience praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, another picture for them to look forward to. This is what you are working towards. Whose praise and glory and honor are we going to see in that moment? Well, primarily, we're going to see the praise and glory and honor of Jesus Christ. But imagine this scenario with me. The the movie uh, Peter Pan. Just add another Peter into this story. There's the moment in Peter Pan where um, the lost boys have been captured by the pirates. And, and they're, they're, the pirates are saying, you've got to become pirates now. You've got to sign this contract. And there's a whole fun song about it. Um, and, um, and, and they won't do it because Wendy says, no, we won't do that. Peter is going to save us. And they say, well, then you've got to walk the plank. And so she walks the plank. And when she goes down, if you remember the story, there's no splash. Why? Because Peter has flown down and caught her right before the last moment. When, and then he comes in, he defeats all the pirates, and there's a great victory at the end of it. And whose glory is there in that last moment? Well, Peter's, right? Peter's glory, because he defeated the pirates, he saved everybody. 
but all the lost boys that trusted in him share in that glory because they put their faith in the right person. Their faith was validated and vindicated through that dark moment that they experienced. And so when we see Jesus Christ come and set everything right at the end of the day, winning all praise and glory and honor, we will share in that moment because we have trusted in the right person. It's not that we have done anything to save ourselves or that we have earned our own glory. We are simply sharing in the glory that Jesus will bring, but we will share in that moment. This is the picture he's giving them. Your story is not leading to just this. Out of this moment, trusting Jesus through the suffering you're experiencing right now is going to be the reason for the praise and the glory and honor at the end of the day because you trusted through what was difficult. He's giving them pictures. He's retelling their story to understand what is happening to them in this moment. And then the next thing he does, he holds up a mirror to their faith to encourage them that they're doing the right thing. These next verses, notice how many times he says you. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Why the emphasis on you here? He's not adding a whole lot of new thoughts here. This is just the implications of what he's just been saying. But he's saying all of this stuff I've been talking about, this resurrected life, this hope and praise and glory that I'm talking about, I'm talking about you. You are doing this. You have faith. You will obtain the outcome of your salvation. And he's just, so I think he's just looking at them and encouraging them and saying, you're doing the right thing. Anybody ever got a letter or just a moment of encouragement from someone you respected in a moment that you really just needed it? As it comes to mind, a letter my dad wrote me when I was 15 and I was off at a, a travel swim meet. And he just wrote me a letter that, that I got when I got there. He stuck it in my bag. And I remember opening it and reading it. And I don't remember what it said. It wasn't like big new thoughts about my life. It was basically just him saying... I'm proud of you. You're doing a good job. And that was so significant. Just that encouragement to say, I, meet, I see you. Yes, there's something great about hard work and all these things, but what I'm saying is that's you. I'm seeing you doing that. I want you to know you're doing the right thing. If you're here this morning and you are trusting God, you have faith in him in the midst of suffering, and you're wrestling, and it's confusing, and it's difficult, and you don't know how you feel about it, and you have mixed feelings, but you're fighting for faith in Jesus Christ. You are doing the right thing. That's you. See yourself. Hold up a mirror. I want you to see you have faith, and that's what matters. We are applying the concepts to people's context, applying it to our own context. See yourself in this story. See them in the story when they need someone to say, you're right where you're supposed to be. The last thing we see him doing here, I think he's just showing them that they are not alone. This, these last three verses can feel a little bit like an addendum, like he's kind of gone off on this this historical theological tangent. But, but I think what he's pulling at, and, and you see this again later, particularly in chapter 5, 
is that he's reminding them that they are not alone in this faith that waits for later. He says, concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through who those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. What do you notice in there? That, that the prophets who talked about this Messiah that was coming, who talked about this king that was going to set all things right, what was revealed to them was they were waiting for later. The outcome of their faith that God would fulfill his promises was deferred. It wasn't just an ascent. In fact, if you read a lot of these stories, they, they never got past the down moment. <laughs> I think it's encouraging just to know we have a heritage of people who have waited through suffering for God to fulfill his promises later. First Peter 5, he reminds us um, that same kind, the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So, so Peter's doing both. He comes back to this idea. He's showing them that, that they're not alone in their waiting and suffering because there are people around the world right now experiencing the same thing. And here he's saying there's people throughout all of history who've done the same thing that you're doing right now. And that is encouraging. That's what we're doing here this morning. Right, we, we show up here. You didn't come here this morning to hear the best teaching on First Peter. I can send you YouTube links to get better content. We came here this morning for many reasons, but one reason is in part to remind each other that we are not alone in this, that you don't just believe this thing. You're not just in telling yourself this story you've made up in your head about what your suffering is leading to, that you are part of a community that believes, that has faith, that encourages one another. And as you show up here this morning, you are applying concepts to my context you are encouraging me that this is true, just as Peter is encouraging his readers that they are not alone in their faith. And so I think as we learn from Peter how to apply the truth of God's word to the real-life situations in our lives, um, I think we get a number of ideas here. And it, what, a song that comes to mind as I think about the need for this and, and how we can learn from Peter and why we need to learn from Peter, how to speak truth into the lives, into our own lives, and especially into the lives of others who may be experiencing suffering. There's a song by Andrew Peterson called We Will Survive. And if you listen to this song, you, he's kind of telling the story and, and pulling out some of the ideas of a season that seems like he experienced some depression, um, just some difficulties in his life, and what was encouraging in that season um, was other people reminding him of what was true. Here's, this is the last few verses of the song. He says, Do you remember how I used to say, Love is a fire and it's going to burn us up to make the space for grace to grow? Now it feels like love has called my bluff. So tell me the story. I still need to hear it. Tell me about the love that never dies. Tell me the story. I still need to hear. Tell me we're going to make it out alive again. I need to know there's nothing left to fear. There's nothing left to hide. So when you look me in the eye, I know we will survive. We will survive. This is what Peter is teaching us 
to do. To take the truths of the gospel and apply them to our situations, particularly to the situations of suffering and difficulty. That we need to know that we are rooted in Jesus and we are shaped by his resurrection. And that through that we hope in not always now, but later. And we use those truths to retell our stories and the stories of those around us. We encourage each other that we are doing the right thing even if the situation around us is confusing. And that we are not alone as we walk through difficulties, as we wait for life to come out of the death we experience in this fallen world. So I'm excited to dig into the rest of this book to learn more from uh, the book of Peter, how to do this as the Spirit teaches us how the ideas that Apostle Peter taught to the first century church are still relevant and applicable to our lives um, and our sufferings today. Back, uh, Peter will be back next week, I believe. So. Thank you.